0: Let's see if I can make this work. There we go. Um, good evening. Thanks for coming out tonight. Emily du Chatelet, Forgotten Thinkers. Um, I, I was pondering who to, whom to do in the Forgotten Thinkers series, and I thought, Voltaire. I should do Voltaire. And I thought, no, people actually do know Voltaire. And I thought, Emily, Emily du Chatelet, because the only reason people generally know of her is because she was Voltaire's lover. Um, which, A, doesn't narrow the field very much. Voltaire had many lovers. Uh, so that's, that's uh, uh, um, so that, you know, but she should, she should be known for more than just being Voltaire's lover. So I, I wanted to start there. But uh, sort of a preamble, uh, maybe a pre-tirade, perhaps. Uh, when I was doing research on, on Emily, one of the things I discovered is that there is a movement uh, to, to sort of find the lost female philosophers, which I'm entirely in favor of, by the way, um, but the argument goes in several of them, the tenor of the argument was that the 20th century and 21st century university philosophy schools had repressed information and knowledge of women like Emily de Chatelet, um, and that's why we don't know about them. This is not really the case, uh, nearly so much as the fact that women have been systematically denied education um, for all of recorded history. That's really the hurdle. you know. When you take half your population and say it's either illegal often, um, actually literally illegal for women to learn to read or, or write, and or you place other so- social restrictions to them having an opportunity to get any kind of education, um, then, yeah, you don't generate a lot of great female thinkers, uh, as it's not really the university's fault, per se. Uh, if they weren't letting women in now to be educated, it would be the university's fault. I just thought it was a very curious line of argument. It sort of overlooked the preceding 5,000 years of uh, the failure to educate women and give them the opportunity to shine intellectually, which is why Emily is such a great role model, and that's why I thought it was good uh, to talk about her. The other background that we need is uh, what, what used to be called the invisible college. It's not something we we have as much anymore, but starting in the you know late 17th century, mid 17th century, but going right on through till the late you know early 20th century maybe, but at least late 19th century, there was no real systematic method for higher education. I mean, there were a few universities around. Most of them were religiously oriented. You had a few uh, tech schools, engineering schools were starting up, uh, but this was also new. And so if you were, say, um, doing geology research, geological research, which is sort of getting off the ground in the the mid-1700s, you would just write letters to people and you would say, hi, I'm in the Netherlands, and I've dug up some things that look like this, and I heard that you had written an article on this. What Do you, do you have anything to say? And then these letters would circulate. Um, one of the things that the, uh, the Royal Academy of Sciences in England had was a translation service and a mail clearinghouse. So if you, people could write to them in, say, Dutch, and then they would translate it into maybe English and Italian, and they would forward it on to people who they thought might be interested in that subject. And so this network of generally self-educated, often but not invariably noble men, women coming, um, who were pursuing their own interests, and so they called this again the invisible college because there was no particular organized society. The societies were just getting started Uh, The universities are becoming much more like what we think of as universities. But really, there was no such thing as a research university, you know, where you would do scientific experiments. That that didn't really exist. Um, The notion of being a professional philosopher really didn't exist. So these sorts of things that we take for granted didn't exist then. But to understand someone like Emily de Chatelet, you need to understand that the people she was thinking about, the people she wanted to communicate with and impress, was this broad European widespread of individuals who were not necessarily associated with institutions, some of them were, but were simply famous for their publications and the research, often in the form of letters, um, as much as anything else. Sometimes books, often self-published books. Um, So this is a very, it's a very different world. And what she wanted to be, as we'll see, was called a philosoph, not a philosopher per se, but a philosoph. so that's just keep the invisible college in mind because this is going to come back several times. So as you can see, she was born in 1706. Um, fortunately for me, we know nothing about her childhood, which is great because that means I don't have to learn anything about it. Uh, she was born to a, a, a very well-connected noble family, but they were the aristocracy that had been appointed that they, they had gained their aristocratic titles through service to the king. And this is one sort of aristocracy. The other kind of aristocracy was the landed gentry that had had their nobility come down from, in theory, time and memorial, but you know, going back 100, 200, 300, 400 years, associated with um, you know, specific regions and specific land. And the nobility of the service, nobility of the robe, the people who gained access to the king and queen, which is all about court access, um, through service, and then were ennobled, were slightly looked down on, but on the other hand, they had access to the king and queen directly, which means, of course, access is power, so they were also very powerful. For her family, was the, the aristocracy through service to the king. Her parents and grandparents had been serving in a, uh, the French royal family, Versailles and the whole thing. Louis Louis XV is who will become most important, but they'd also, uh, earlier relatives had been associated with the Sun King, Louis XIV. And so they had a very long tradition of this. They were extraordinarily well-placed, um, you know, direct access to the king and queen, high ranking courtiers, uh, Lots of state jobs, very solid uh, income, of course, lots of money associated with this. And so she was raised as one of the most privileged, most elite people in France. Um, so all of those you know, things, wonderful things you see about Versailles and the court and the, and the dramas where everybody dresses up and looks great, this is, this is her people. This is where she's from. Um, she marries... Again, we know nothing about her education. She probably wasn't systematically educated. Uh, at this time, women tended not to be. Um, her education would have consisted of things like deportment, dancing, uh, um, lit- basic literacy, lots of religious education, which would be important. She would probably go to mass every single day of her life uh, when she was a child. So uh, his most Catholic majesty, right? So it's Catholicism is a very big issue. Um, but beyond that, you know, why? Why bother? Why, you know, they need to read, they need to write, but they're women. What, they can't do anything. And so after it became very spotty. But we don't even know beyond the general outlines of how uh, aristocratic w- female children were educated, anything. We just basically don't know anything about her upbringing. Um, but she marries, and she marries uh, the Marquis du Châtelet, hence her name, uh, Marquise du Châtelet. He was the nobility of the land. He was the landed gentry. And very, very highly placed landed gentry. Uh, General in the king's armies. He became moved up through the ranks very nicely through through his uh, connections and service and and the many wars that France was always fighting at this time. And so, and she lots of inherited land associated with that. So when she gets married... She follows the pattern of of her class, which is her husband goes away and she moves to Paris and has lots of lovers um, and and spends all of her time building social connections and climbing, making, you know, increasing her status at the court, promoting her lovers. This is one of the things that women spend a lot of time doing because they couldn't have careers. They would spend an immense amount of energy promoting the careers of their lovers, their friends, their children. Um, their husbands, that, that, was, that was what you did. And so you, it's in the social circle. She's changing her clothes, you know, six, seven, eight times a day sometimes for different events, getting up early, staying up late. I mean, it was, a, it was really this sort of career, this life. Um, and, I, and I go into this in you know, a little bit of detail because she was almost, I mean, she wasn't the king or the queen, but she was almost at the pinnacle of French society when French society was at one of its great cultural peaks. You know, you have Louis XV, you have Voltaire, you have all the salons in Paris, all the famous things we think of. And when she's about 23 or 24, right in there, she thinks, I wanna get an education. I want to become educated. And she wasn't really at this point. I mean, again, she's literate, she can write letters and she can read, but she thought, I I really do wanna get an education. And she hires uh, tutors, and specifically math tutors. And it turns out that she's really, really good at math. Um, she goes through a couple of tutors. She's lovers with one, probably. You know, all the ins and outs and things are going on. But she takes it increasingly seriously. And there was a bit of a vogue at the time for noble women to, you know, become lettered. But but she really went for it. Uh, and and her, her, one of her tutors said at first, "Oh yeah, you know, I, you know, I've." I've done the Duchess of this and the Countess of that. And oh, here I go, I've got this. In his letters, he goes, oh, I've got this other noblewoman, but you know she's going to pay. Uh, and so he starts working with her, and like his letters a while later are like, ooh, wait a second. <laughs> this is a whole different kettle of fish. She um, is a very bright woman, a very impressively bright woman. Around this time, she also meets Voltaire. And Voltaire is probably the most famous person in France after the king, uh, famous and notorious. Um, he, had, he had written uh, you know, his famous poem on, in French history, which sort of established his fame, but he was constantly in trouble because A, he wasn't an aristocrat, which meant he was just a servant. And it's hard for us to, to come to grips with what a barrier there was at this time. The famous story from Voltaire's life is he was at a party And uh, a duke, I can't remember the duke's name, forget him anyway, uh, he made a quip and Voltaire fired right back because he's Voltaire. And sort of everyone laughed at the duke. And so when Voltaire went outside, the duke's henchmen beat him with clubs. This was not like a casual roughing up. They beat him with clubs. The result of which, Voltaire was taken to court because he had insulted a duke. And all of the aristocracy who had been treating him so well and so wonderfully and saying how great he was and what a genius and what a said, well, you know, he's a duke, you can't do that. You're nobody. And it was very educational for him. So that's, Emily is the aristocracy. But she meets, she starts moving in the circles with Voltaire. They start to correspond. Voltaire starts to become very taken with her and about the age of twenty-five, um, well, not about the age of tw- at twenty-five, she decides, "That's it. I want to move to the country with Voltaire. I'm going to study, and I'm going to become educated. I, and I'm leaving the life of Paris. I'm, I'm going to give it up." And everybody thought this was crazy. The saying at the time was, ennui is the disease, and Paris is the cure." You had literally thousands, if not tens of thousands, wealthy, well-positioned, you know, individuals all throughout France trying desperately to gain access to Versailles, the king and the queen, the courts and everything that she had. And she said, I'm giving it up because I want to learn. I want to study. I want to gain knowledge. I want to improve myself, I think I'm wasting my life doing this. My days pass pleasantly, but I'm not being the full me that I can be. That is an extraordinary turning point for a young woman in 17, what would that be, 1731 or so, No, she wouldn't be 25 and 31, when would she be 25? Yeah, 1731, to simply abandoned that. And and like I said, her friends at the time, we have the letters, said, oh, she won't last six months. And so uh, Voltaire was holed up because he was threatened with arrest, as he usually was. And he had been arrested repeatedly, by the way, so it wasn't an idle threat. He would have been arrested. So he's hiding out at the country estate of the Marquis du Châtelet, the Châtelet, you know, sort of home estate in Syrie. Cire is the name of it. Um, And Emily says, I'm gonna move out there and move in with him. Well, and it was in the middle of nowhere, six or seven or eight days from Paris, which meant on Mars. No one had actually occupied the house for over a decade because it wasn't in Paris, so why would you be there? Her husband only went there once a year when he had to settle accounts and take care of things. And so she says, you know, I'm gonna move there with Voltaire and writes her husband and says, you know, I'm gonna move in with Voltaire at our estate and fix it up. And he's like, great. Because you know, the house is falling apart, and then you can watch over the business. And and because I'm off fighting wars all the time. So this is perfect. This is working out wonderful for everybody. And Voltaire, spectacularly rich, by the way, uh, through various sorts of money manipulation schemes. invested his own money into rebuilding the chateau there at Siret. And, and so they just start this adventure going. But what's important is at 25, think about this, what were you thinking when you were 25, or if you are 25, to give up, I mean, the whole life that you've been trained and pointed towards, and to say, no, no, I want an education, I want to learn. I want to make something of myself and my mind, quite consciously. And she struggled with herself. You know, because this is moving to every... When their the early visitors said they were visiting a Cartusian monastery. They would stop for a couple days and then leave, and they would just... You get, it's impossible. They're not going to make it. It's nowhere. There's no... There's nothing. There's just the chateau. But they did make it. They stayed for pretty much five years consecutively, and then on and off for the rest of their lives, Voltaire and... well rest of uh, Emily's life. She died earlier than Voltaire, they were pretty much there. And so she starts to study with Voltaire, by the way, a good person to study with, um, but also on her own. She hired tutors, lots of math tutors, and it turns out Voltaire's mind did not turn towards mathematics, and hers did. So they really pretty quickly started going their own separate ways, although they did work together on a couple of projects. Um, An early one, and this will give you an idea of the tenor of her mind, was uh, experiments with fire. And so the Academy of Sciences in, in Paris, well, in France, but it's really the you know the King's Royal Academy, would put out prizes for various problems, and if you could solve them, you would win money, or they'd publish your results, and it was sort of to bring the invisible college together. And so Voltaire and Emily decided to enter it because so, they wanted the question is what is fire essentially? Because they didn't know is it a substance, is it a thing, or is it a condition? It's you know that we you know this is before people knew these sorts of questions. And so they went out and ran lots of experiments, not one or two, but they had a foundry there, and so they had the people, I, they, the, I think the workers must have thought they were nuts, right? But they'd go out and they would have things heated up and they'd weigh them when they're hot, and they'd let them cool down, and they'd weigh them when they're cold. And this goes on for months, and they did lots of work together. And it turns out that Voltaire and Emily disagreed. And so they each submitted Uh, an answer, right? And now think about this. Now she's, I think this is 27 years old, right in there. Uh, She's been working with Voltaire, uh, who's both older and, you know, world famous. I mean, he is one of the most famous people, certainly in France and all across Europe. And when they do the experiments and study the results, she just says, you're wrong. You're you're wrong. You're not getting this right at all. And so they put separate papers in. Um, And this, and and through various manipulations, but she, of course, submitted hers anonymously um, because she was a woman. (coughs) But uh, curiously, of course, and this is important to know, everybody knew who had submitted it who mattered because, you know, it's going to come on her paper, in her handwriting, to to the courtiers and the people that her parents and friends and relatives had appointed to the positions that they have probably from her servant or with her letterhead from the, you know, Chatelet estate, right? So the the anonymity was only for the public. Anybody who knew the inside was, of course, no, this is Emily, this is who's doing this. And so the the judges, they didn't win, neither of them won, um, but they decided to publish them, uh, as they would do if they thought the the essays were very good, basically. They thought the work was interesting and that other people should read them. They, They decided to publish it. This is her first big breakthrough. But but this is this is significant because when you're published by the Academy of Sciences, this means congratulations you're a member you're a philosopher you've arrived because that's now going to be distributed it's got the King's World Imprimatur on there, um, and so people this is like her moment of arrival but again significantly, she leaves Paris to go live with Voltaire on the on the estates out in the countryside and in very short order she says. Yeah, Voltaire, you're wrong. Love you, get along, you're wrong. I'm right, I'm writing my own essay. So this project of self-liberation was very rapid and very powerful with her. Um, And so this acceptance and printing of her submission, and she was right, by the way, and Voltaire was wrong, I should say this, I should should mention that, that she was correct. Fire is not a substance, it's not something that hot things are taking in, and then when they cool off, it leaves. Uh, it, is, it is a condition, a state of, of matter, right, of, of the exciting of the atoms. She didn't know it was the exciting of the atoms yet, but she was very much further along that line. Um, and so this was just heartening for her. But because it is the 18th century again, the philosopher meant someone who might do physics experiments in the morning, write odes in the afternoon, and write an opera in the evening, right? I mean, it was a wide-ranging. And so one of the things she did, that was sort of a best in her lifetime, was um, she did a Discourse on Happiness, which I give a big print here because I think it's important to understand who she was and where she was coming from. So it's on the front page. Um, in order to be happy, one must, be, one must have freed oneself of prejudice, one must be virtuous, healthy, have taste and passions, and be susceptible to illusions. So let's start with those. This is an interesting list. Uh, by the way, this was one of the readings for one of the major exams in France just a few years back. So if you, if you look this up in, under its French title, you'll find all the, all the notes that people were, were sharing to, to try and pass the back, uh, because this was on there. In order to be happy, one must be, have freed oneself of prejudices. Now, one of the prejudices she had to free herself from was that Voltaire was a commoner. This is an extro- this is a big leap, right? To to everyone was fine with her having Voltaire as her lover. That's fine. That not you know who cares? But to make a serious life investment with a commoner. This is this is ridiculous. Remember this is roughly the same time that that Mozart is being paid as if I think he's a second cook. That was the status of Mozart on the on the on the wages when he was hired. And he was treated remarkably poorly because he was not a member of the nobility. They they just treated him very poorly. It's not until fifty years after this when you get someone like Beethoven who just won't take it anymore, who says, I'm Beethoven, you can go away. Uh, you know, he says there's there's a thousand princes, there's only one Beethoven, you know, this guy, this was his this was his attitude. But one of the prejudices she had to overcome to pursue her happiness was that Voltaire was a commoner. And she did. This was extraordinary. She also had to come over a prejudice that noble women, real women, attractive women, wealthy women, don't spend their time trying to be wise. Don't try to educate themselves. Why would you do this? I mean, it's fine to dabble around with this or that, but to sit, I mean, she, she literally was working hours and hours and hours a day, exhausting herself in studies. You know, some prejudices. You have to overcome your prejudices. One must be virtuous. This, this, by virtuous, she meant doing what you think is right. It will it, You will feel better. So when she makes the decision, when, in her letters, one of the things she reflects, she finally makes the decision, no, I do want to go to live in the country with, with Voltaire, and I do want to educate myself. And she writes about how powerful this made her feel, how, how great this made her feel, that, that being able to... Do what you feel is right inside yourself really gave her a sense of worth and power and capacity, um, which she then used effectively. Health, be healthy, not like I was last time. Um, have tastes. And she thought she's sort of in the Oscar Wilde camp. That that much of life is, is a discernment of taste and preferences. And if you don't know what your preferences are, then how are you supposed to know what you like? And then how are you supposed to know how to enjoy your life if you don't know what your tastes are? So she thought having tastes, knowing what they were, spending time on them was a significant uh, portion of being happy. That, the example I always like is if people say something like, oh, I don't like opera. I say, well, that's fine. How many operas have you been to? And they're like, none. <laughs> See, that's, that's not knowing tastes, right? If, if you haven't tried or experimented, how do you know? Right, that's that was sort of what she's driving at there. Um, passions, the same thing. But she said tastes are, or passions are big tastes. Her passion for Voltaire, her passion for for knowledge, and for mathematics. She so says those are great, but she says the problem with them is you can't choose them. They choose you. You can't make yourself be passionate essentially, but passions will seize you, and it's great if you can have them. So make your life available for passions so that when it comes along, you'll have that great, you know, you know, that drive, that force, that, that life power well up in you. And the curious one, and be susceptible to illusions. Now, for someone who's a mathematician and, and a, 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 a proponent of reason, of the first order, what she means here is things like if you go to the theater and you tell yourself, well, it's all fake, you've missed the point. If, if, if you... Uh, look at uh, a, a handsome courtier who's trying to court you and you go, well, I think perhaps he's just flattering me because he wants to seduce me. You're missing the point. Right. The sort of she, she said, you know, reason is good, but you, it's almost this notion of cynicism. Right. That that defends us from being open to impressions and for allowing things to really affect us. And we go, oh, well, they're just in it for the money, they're just in it for this, it's, it's all a big sham. And then pretty soon, everything is a big sham, and then life loses all of its mystery and magic and power, and she thought that was deadening. That when you think life has no great mysteries and, and powers and opportunities and passions, well, then you're, you're really missing out. And those are her main core here, but and she goes on. And one must begin by saying to oneself and by convincing oneself that we have nothing to do in this world but to obtain ourselves some agreeable sensations and feelings. That's what we're here for. We're not here for any other agreeable sensations and feelings. Pursue that. You know, enjoy what you do and you'll enjoy yourself, right? I mean, kind of don't do things you don't enjoy and you'll you avoid not enjoying yourself. You know, sort of that. that but notice for a, a woman who probably had been to Mass every single day of her life for decades um, to just stand up and say, look, no, this is, this is silly. And we'll see where that goes. The moralists who say to me, curb your passion and master desire if you want to be happy, do not know the route to happiness. One is only happy because of satisfied tastes and passions. It is passions that one should ask of God if one dared to ask him anything. And Lenotre was quite right to ask the Pope for temptations rather than indulgences. You want temptations, you want passions, you want that desire. You want that sense of striving and possibility and opportunity. So, so was it, like I said, this was a bestseller for her. I mean, within the comparative world of, of, of her time. This was reprinted, people really loved it. I mean, it goes on. It's, it's, it's very short, I recommend reading the whole thing. It's maybe 15, 20 pages. Um, but, but it really is a fascinating consideration of these issues. And then finally, she finishes up the first thing to do is to be resolute about what one wants to be and about what one wants to do. This is lacking in almost all men. It is, however, without it, it. It is necessary, however. Without it, one swims forever in a sea of uncertainty. One destroys in the morning what one has made in the evening. Happiness takes courage. You have to be resolute about who you want to be and what you want to do. And if you aren't resolute, uh, you're probably not going to make it. And so this notion is a very interesting mix of, of sort of uh, personal drive, personal integrity, but in the pursuit of your interest, your joys, your pleasures, uh, and making yourself big. And like I said, it, was, it resonated with the times. People found this fascinating, particularly coming from a woman who had, this was, you know, you can see where this comes from. She has personally lived this out. I changed what I was doing, because I believed I could do, I could live a better, fuller, more pleasant life. Um, And she did, all all the evidence is that she did. So this is her first big sort of bestseller after the fire essay. And then I wanna go to another one that she worked on this for years. Uh, It turns out to be, uh, it's on the next page, on the back page. She worked on it, it was about 700 pages when she finally wrapped it up. And it's basically called Examines the Bible. And I think it was just purgative for her. She just needed to get it out of her system. Um, Because again, it's hard for us to imagine how inculcated she would have been in Catholicism. Even if you didn't believe it, you're still just inundated with it uh, in in, in 18th century France. And so she did this long project. She Did some of it with Voltaire, but modern scholarship says, people used to say, oh, well, this is all just Voltaire. And it turned out, no, this is mostly 90% 90% Emily. This is, this is her work. She did this. This isn't her just sort of cadging notes from Voltaire. Um, but what she does, and it's almost extraordinary to think about, is she goes line by line through the Bible and disagrees with every single line. <laughs> I mean, this is, the, the, the new critical edition of this, which just came out, by the way, in 2012, is 1,000 pages long. Because it has commentary to help out with you know certain references that we've lost. It's a, it's a thousand pages long, and in French. It hasn't been translated into English yet, unfortunately. I don't know if it will be, but I, I hope it is. Um, I, I, I want to make a page a day calendar, all right? Where you just for three hundred and sixty five days, of Emily de Chatelet says this about the Bible. But here, here's just a few you know random selections in no particular order. And, and it is, by the way, it is human, It is. I, I think it is hilarious, actually. In Genesis 1:4, God divides uh, the light from the shadows, as if shadows were something that could be separated from the lights. It is very amusing to see three days and three nights marked by the morning and the evening before the sun was created, for it was only created on the fourth day. I mean, so it is, it is, it is 1,000 pages of that right there, and it just goes on and on. <clears throat> In the end, God gave nothing by this detour, the 40 years of the desert, uh, Moses leading the people through the desert. For one we will see that the Israelites never stopped complaining in the desert and never stopped regretting that they had left Egypt. (laughs) Right? So so Because the other thing she does is she uses the classics. You get the whole Bible and then you get a whole bunch of apologetics from biblical scholars also. And she attacks both of them. And so somebody says, well, why would you spend 40 years wandering the desert? Well, this guy over here, some you know, biblical scholar of fame and note, says, oh, it's to you know, train the Israelites to appreciate God and to forget about Egypt. And she says, no, they never did. It didn't work. Then we move to the New Testament. We get moments like this. It is curious that Jesus died in public and in full view, but was resurrected in secret with no witnesses. <laughs> <laughs> This is just a very pithy way to <laughs> you know, and she, By the way, she has a, if, you, if you can read her in the French, I recommend it. She has a, a very exact, her mind works just like very pithy, very exacting mind. It's a, it's a wonderful mind to encounter. Um, it is said in Matthew 1.18 that Mary found herself pregnant before Joseph and she had lived together which with several other places in the gospel that tell of the brothers of Jesus Christ and that Jesus was called the firstborn of Mary, she had other children by St. Joseph. Now remember, St. Joseph in Catholicism, right? And so she she just goes here and she just builds it. look. You know, A is curious that she had uh, just said that Mary found herself pregnant before Joseph had lived together, right? Curiosity curiosity number one. And then what about all these other brothers? Where did they go? What happened to them? And so, like I said, it, it is... In her handwriting, it's 700 pages. Um, Of course, you could not publish this in her lifetime. This is why I wanna go back to the College of Letters again because we would think, oh, that means it must have been secret. No, you circulated in manuscript form to your friends and at least five different versions of this have survived. And it influenced people so much that a couple of years after her death, Um, a famous uh, Catholic scholar felt that he needed to argue against it. And so he, you know, so there actually are polemicists who spend time in their arguments saying, oh, well, here's what Emily de Chatelet gets wrong in her examinations of the Bible, right? So even though it wasn't published and never, of course, was widely circulated because you'd immediately get arrested and go to jail like Voltaire, People did know it did circulate. These ideas were moving around. They're in her letters. People are getting excerpts from it. People who visit, they're reading to them at night from these. What are you working on? Oh, I'm working on this little thing on the Bible. Would you like to hear the first 500 pages? Uh, you know, and and so this is being read out. And again, so this is just this extraordinarily amazing break. I mean, for the t- this would be sort of you know good stuff for the modern atheist movement. You know, so it, it, very powerful. So go back what, 200, 300 years, and make yourself a woman um, with no particular educational background, and now just take on the entire theocratic intellectual establishment. This is what she did. I mean, it's, it's not, it wasn't a small it was huge. I'm going to argue with... All of the supposed experts on the Bible who are backed by the church and backed by the state, they have the fame, they have the access, they have the publications, they have their own newspapers, but here I go, 700 pages of hitting them with a hammer. It's a really impressive feat of both intellectual vigor and incredible insight, because it's just pithy. It is hilarious, in, in section after section. Some of it has been translated into English. There's, I can't find any readily available versions of it. Um, so for about $230, you can get the new French critical edition. I think I'm gonna wait for the paperback myself. Um, so while she's working on this, and she tended to work on things uh, uh, simultaneously, she did the work that would bring her the greatest fame, um, both in her lifetime and possible, well, I guess two works. The, the first one she did called the, essentially called The Foundations of Physics. Um, and this, again, is hard for us to understand, but there, there was no division between science and philosophy at this time. It's just developing. And all kinds of questions. What is fire? You know, why do the planets attract each other? What keeps them in orbit? Uh, Do heavier things fall faster than lighter things? How does gravity work? Um, You know, just the entire gamut of science was open, but it was confused and mixed in with metaphysics. What's the first cause? You know, where where did the universe come from? Is the universe necessary? All of these questions. she wrote a, well, she, she studied Newton. By the way, this entire time she was a, which we'll see in a second. She was a big student of Newton, and she agreed with him a lot of things, but she disagreed with him on a lot of things, like everything else, like uh, like um, Voltaire, like the Church, uh, mostly disagreement with the Church. But and so she studied with um, a student of, of well, sort of a student of a student of Leibniz, uh, and she had been reading lots of Leibniz. She had been reading a lot of Newton. The French sort of champion intellectual at the time was Descartes. So these were the Cartesian philosophers. And so the Cartesians and the Newtonians are at loggerheads, You know, arguing back and forth across the channels. The letters were flying, the arguments are going madly back and forth. Um, and so she steps in the middle of this and writes essentially a textbook. In theory, it was for her son. In practice, it was for everybody. Uh, that says, here is how Essentially, the universe works from first causes through light and gravity and necessary logical structures, uh, everything. I mean, it's, it's like a huge textbook, the foundation of physics. I mean, that's what it is. It's just this massive thing. But she starts with, I can only touch on it because it's, it's big and it's powerful. Um, but she starts with the notion of the universe metaphysical sense, what's necessary. She starts with some logical propositions, which is a very logical work. And she says, well, the universe basically needs a creator. It needs a first cause. And we'll call that God. So she wasn't a true atheist. Um, And what happens is that God creates the universe, but that's it. Essentially, it's it's the watchmaker, clockmaker God, the deist. She's a classic deist. He wound the universe up, and now that's it. No no more intervention, no miracles. Miracles cannot happen. Because if miracles happen, then there are no physical laws. Because we know there are physical laws, and the world is rational and orderly, then that means God has to keep his hands off. And so she, as one commentator said, she had the remarkable feat of defining God with no reference to the church, the state, the Bible, miracles, you know, it's just this incredibly rational. And if you just took out God and put in uh, the Big Bang or the singularity, fine. It would work equally well. We don't, we don't know what happened before then, and so it's just a big cipher. Really, it's so logical and clear. But in the course of this, she does a couple of things. She cites correctly with Newton on the, on the notion that planets attract each other, that gravity is an attractive force. Um, as opposed to the Cartesians who had this notion of uh, turbulence and uh, just a different theory for trying to explain uh, various options. She argued with Leibniz about something things. she argued with Newton about something. She argued with one of, disagreed with one of Newton or Leibniz's students Wolf about several issues in the uh, foundations of physics and created uh, systematic answers for all kinds of events and uh, she was correct, by the way, on optics and light. She had some very important insights into light and how light works. Again, one of the big questions of the time. She expands her thesis of fire and comes pretty close to black body radiation, which is a pretty major insight considering what she had to work with. Um, you know, it really is just this, its hard to, to summarize or even pick anything out of it in particular because it is just a about 200 page systematic review and argument for how all of physics and the universe is organized. This was so well received, published in France originally. So one, very, very good news. Um, Two, um, immediately upon it being translated into Italian, it was translated into several languages. uh, She was put on the, she got a seat, an honorary seat on the Academy of Sciences in Italy, in Rome. I mean, they, they said, "Wow, she's great." She, I think she was the first woman to ever receive that that honor. So, I mean, she has really arrived. When it was translated into German, um, the the comment was, "Oh, this is great. We have Emily Du Chatelet explaining to us what Leibniz meant." <laughs> because it was so much clearer in her. Even when she disagreed with him, which she did, she wasn't you know she wasn't a pure Leibnizian by any extreme, but. Her explanation and her use of his, specifically, her, his logical tools was, was so clear, so concise, and so well presented that people were like, wow, this is great. This is so, you know, this is helps us understand what Leibniz was talking about. Thank you very much. And so the uh, awards and, you know, sort of recognition really started to, to, to flow to her now. Um, people are writing to her. She's corresponding with all the leading thinkers, uh, uh, not all of them, but many of the leading thinkers in Europe. And she's, for, and she's working at a furious pace, an unbelievable pace um, for someone who was doing lots of other things, as I'll mention now. Uh, so she's, she's moving, she's about 40 now. She does all this, by the way, so, so someone who really starts to be educated at 25, um, by the time she is 40, has become a, a, a recognized thinker across Europe. That's pretty good, I would say. You know, this, that's, that is no small feat, considering, considering the um, incredible amount of prejudice she had to overcome both externally, the society's prejudice against women, and thinking, oh, isn't she such a cute noblewoman dabbling in mathematics? But I think even greater was the internal prejudice. Right, she says to free yourself from prejudice. I can do this. I do have the capacity, and I want to. That double overcoming, I think that's pretty impressive for for 15 years. You know, pretty fast. Oh, and I should mention, by the way, when she um, did bring out the the foundations of, of physics, it came out in two editions, but the publication history doesn't really matter. The head of the Academy of Sciences in France thought, oh, I have to sort of, ride to the fence of the Cartesians here because she's sort of taking the Newton line quite often. But he wasn't sure how to do it. Do I take her seriously as a philosopher, a philosophe, and, and sort of argue with her that way, and then but that gives her credibility? Or do I say, well, this is just a work from a woman who doesn't know any better and try to dismiss her? And, and, and the gentleman... Unfortunately for him, chose to sort of say, well, you know, these are complicated issues, and, you know, it's not clear she really understands this, and she doesn't really understand. And he wrote this kind of condescending assault on her. But in, in a sort of, you know, he, did, he wanted to be a gentleman about it, and so it has this, this mix of condescension and gentlemanliness. And her riposte was so crushing that it was, became it was sort of a, a cause to that when because these are all public documents, and so when she wrote back to him, she just destroyed him, and he was just routed from the field. And all of the, fris, the guy's friends said, "Don't say anything more about it. You've you've lost. The best thing to do is retire from the field. <laughs> She's, you're you're done. You just got crushed. Just leave it leave it alone. It's all over for you." So so that so I mean, she is getting this. She is noted. She is known. She is she is famous. She's a philosopher. She's a thinker. Um, And and for a while she'd been having this idea, and she started working on a translation of the Principia Principia Mathematica of of Newton, which is one of the most important works um, in the history of science. And her translation, which is published posthumously, by the way, she dies very shortly here, um, is to this day essentially the standard French work on Newton. I mean, it was an extraordinary achievement. Um, But to give you an idea of what she had to do, I gave you this passage from from Newton. This is translated into English, by the way. It is less clear than this in the original Latin. Um, So this is what she had to try and translate. Everybody that moves in any curved line described in a plane and by a radius drawn to a point either immovable or moving forward within a uniform rectilinear motion describes about that point areas proportional to the times is urged by centripetal force directed to that point. Case 1. For every body that moves in a curved line is, by law 1, turned aside from the rectilinear course by the action of some force that impels it, and that force by which the body is turned off from its rectilinear course and is made to describe in equal times the equal right triangle SAB, SBC, SED, and such about the immovable point S by proposition X-L book 1 elements and law 2 acts in the place B according to the direction of the lineal parallel C, that is, in the direction of the line BS in the place of C according to the direction of the line in parallel AD, that is, in the direction of line CS and and such, and therefore acts always in the directions of line tending to an immovable point, S, Q, E, D. This is several hundred pages long, um, and this is not the most uh, uh, imponderable, it's just like this, for, for ever. So she first she had to translate it, but then she had to give a commentary so that people could understand what the hell Newton was talking about. And it's important to know that if you've taken calculus and, and these sorts of, all of the um, the symbols and the mathematical representation hadn't been developed yet. Newton didn't develop this. And so he's not using, it had to be created. It was created by people like Emily uh, who, who went through and said, this is what he means. Now how can I trans, transcribe that so other people understand it? This is an extraordinary intellectual achievement to, A, understand what Newton is talking about, which there wasn't a lot of people in Europe at this point who did. Uh, she, she was a handful of people who really could get her mind around it. Two, to then have the capacity to translate it at all, and then to be able to write again her concise mind, her, the beauty of her insight and the ability to make it clear on the page, makes it, again, essentially the standard work to this day in French. I mean, 300 years later, it's her work that is often taught. Um, it, it, it's extraordinary, like I said, really a, a powerful achievement in its own right. And people often say, oh, this is a translation. No, this is not a translation. I mean, it is a translation, but it's a translation with a heck of a lot of intellectual labor there, and then the commentary to make it accessible to other people. I mean, it, is, it's, it really is one of the great achievements. Even greater was the fact that she worked, finished this working furiously because she had become pregnant by a lover after Voltaire. Um, and, and, and if you're pregnant in, in, in that time, when you're in your 40s, this is considered dangerous. And so she had this horrible fear that she was going to die in childbirth and her translation wouldn't be finished. And then that. Would be all. This would—that's what she would be left with, right? She had her unfinished works, and she wouldn't really have made a name for herself. And so she's—I mean, l- literally working like 12 and 14 hours a day. I don't know how it would even be possible to do that, but she did um, while pregnant, and she just canceled all her events, and, and no, she wasn't seeing people, and she's just working and working and working, and she pretty much finished it up. Uh, gave birth to her daughter, and died. 42. And that, that she, was, she turns out to be correct. She, she, her fears were, were borne out. And, and, and they don't know why. This is, it wasn't a clear cause. I mean, lots of women died of childbirth at this time, of course. Um, but she, she may have just exhausted herself. She, she may have just killed herself with work. That was the kind of drive that she had. Um, but her works lived on her Principia translation worked on, the influence of her letters, which we don't have time to talk about, but in a world of letters, in the world of the Invisible College, our ideas were shared through letters, and she was an um, expert at, at that. Um, she, her, her influence on Voltaire, people always talk about Voltaire's influence on her. She influenced Voltaire. Several, of, not several, A number of his important works are heavily influenced by both her presence in his life, the model that she set, and her ideas. I mean, so so the, the influence goes the other way as well. Um, but finally, one of the things that she talked about in her, in, her, in her essay on happiness was that the realm of the intellect was the one place that women had the opportunity to achieve glory. And she thought the pursuit of glory was one of those things that really could make you happy. And she said, I know it's an illusion, but this is one of those illusions that she liked. And she said, I do want my works to live on after I die. I do want to make a name for myself. I do want glory. I can't do it in the military. I can't do it in politics. I can't do it in finance. But I can do it in the realm of the intellect. And all of the evidence is that she did, which is extraordinary. Like I said, when you consider when she's 23 or 24, Essentially no particular education. By the time she's 40, she's one of the most noted philosophs in Europe. and basically did this herself. I mean she really did do it. Um, and the th- th- reason I want to end on the concept of glory is to go back where I started. Remember I mentioned that there's these essays about, oh, you know, people haven't told us about Emily du and there's these other you know, probably great female thinkers out there who haven't been discovered. And this is probably true. And one, if anybody's you know, cares, the, the place you're likely to find them in Europe are the abbesses and prioresses of the, the nunneries and the uh, convents, because these were often noble women, had the most opportunity to have an education, and had the time and the ability to write their ideas down. So brush up your medieval Latin uh, and head to Europe, because I bet you they're out there. But more significantly, and I think what Emily Duchatelet Chatelet would say, is you don't want to find great female philosophers. Nothing wrong with that. You want to be a great female philosopher. That is the goal. That is the glory. The glory is in remaking yourself into something extraordinary and powerful and wonderful that will make you happy and hopefully make you famous. So, Emily Duchatelet. Chatelet.